Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdell. A stat that I like to cite, it's not one that I know firsthand, but a smart person basically conveyed it to me recently, and I think it's really illustrative. So you can buy a hectare of land in the Amazonian rainforest for about 200 US dollars, and the minute you slash and burn it, its value goes up to something like 1200 US dollars. We need to provide a financing mechanism that pays those who live around our natural carbon sinks, which is, like you said, primarily the developing world, that pays them for doing these activities of preservation and restoration. And so that's why the VCM is a market mechanism that basically creates an artificial revenue stream in the form of carbon credits to those who do this kind of work. All right, Dana, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you. So great to be here. Yeah. So why don't we just start with a little bit on your background before you started working in climate and carbon markets? I'd be curious what the journey to this current point looked like. Yes. So I am actually a lawyer by training. I focused on national security law and I worked on both the Federal Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court here in the U.S. that sits under the U.S. Supreme Court, and also on what's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, which is the appellate court that oversees basically applications for electronic warrants for wiretapping for foreign intelligence gathering. <laughs> Started my career really at the intersection of exciting and really high impact policy considerations um, and how that interacted with new technology and the law. So it's been a sort of intersection that I'm quite interested in. I then started a software company that built AI-powered chatbot technology Mm. for the enterprise retail space. So it was basically AI-powered chatbots that interact with people and allow them to have a more rewarding and successful buying journey. And that similarly was a completely new and evolving technology (laughs) where there was also a new and evolving policy and legal landscape to go along with it. So this is something that I really enjoy navigating as the sort of leader of an organization. That company was sold to a private equity fund in 2020, the beginning of 2020. I went to the fund across at their largest portfolio company and across some of their other portfolio companies as chief innovation officer. And it was then that I had the opportunity to get involved in environmental philanthropy, which is really philanthropy that goes towards large-scale environmental projects. Really incredible, in this case, unbelievable projects that combined conservation, wildlife protection, habitat restoration, protecting key migration routes for a number of endangered species and also endangered breeding grounds or threatened breeding grounds for endangered species. And so was super, super inspired by these projects, but also got to see the challenges associated with financing these projects through philanthropy, Mm. relying on foundations and philanthropists to provide the financing to do these projects in a very sort of project-by-project way. And in my view, prevented the scale uh, needed to do these projects worldwide. And I began together with some others, some of my other co-founders, to do a deep dive into alternative ways of financing these projects, which very clearly is the voluntary carbon market, right? The carbon market is a market mechanism for scaling the finance needed to get these projects done very quickly and at scale. So that led us to the carbon markets, which was both completely, it was an awakening to the existence of this market (laughs) and to the potential and promise of this market, which is to basically funnel ideally trillions of dollars of much needed capital into uh, nature-based solutions. But 
the challenges that have prevented this market from scaling were also very, very apparent. And so we started Flow Carbon in an effort to build technology to address some of these challenges that we saw. Got it. Yeah, I love that setup, especially, yeah, it's evident that you've spent a lot of time in areas that are very nuanced, touch both public and private sector and have, you know, at the times when you were working in them, been at least poised for significant growth. Separately, I'll probably need to pick your brain about everything happening in AI at some point, but uh, it's not the topic of conversation for today. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but it's super fun. We can definitely talk about it. (laughs) I, I think that's a great way to jump into the carbon market conversation. You know, it has the potential to be this really powerful tool to transfer finance into really important climate solutions. And also notably, in many cases, from developed countries to developing ones. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, like what were some of the key, you've kind of mentioned some of them at a high level, but what did you learn about some of the key challenges that were constricting carbon markets in their current state or perhaps their state five years ago from functioning in the way that you would have liked them to to operate? Yeah, definitely can dive into the challenges. Before we do that, I just want to say, why is this so essential to focus on? I'm sure, you know, most people listening probably know this, but... right. Nature currently contributes something like 27% of global emissions because we destroy it, when nature is also our most cost-effective and scalable carbon sink and can provide up to a third of the overall solution to climate change. Preserving these ecosystems and restoring them is incredibly important. And why don't we do that? Why are we rapidly destroying them? Because that's how developing countries make money, right? That's how the developed world developed. And now in the developing world, a stat that I like to cite, it's not one that I know firsthand, but a smart person basically conveyed it to me recently, <laughs> and I think it's really illustrative. So you can buy a hectare of land in the Amazonian rainforest for about 200 US dollars. And the minute you slash and burn it, its value goes up to something like 1200 US dollars. Right. We need to provide a financing mechanism that pays those who live around our natural carbon sinks, which is, like you said, primarily the developing world, that pays them for doing these activities of preservation and restoration. And so that's why the VCM is a market mechanism that basically creates an artificial revenue stream in the form of carbon credits to those who do this kind of work. You do this kind of work, you can certify it through these globally recognized, basically carbon certification entities or agencies, the most well-known one being Vera. You get your carbon credits and that's what you sell for revenue instead of the other stuff that you would generate from your land had you destroyed it and sell for revenue. So that's the sort of wisdom here. Yeah, no, thanks so much for that context. I think it's really important. And we saw a very clear example of it where a different solution is needed earlier this year. For instance, when, as I'm sure you were following at the time, you know, in the Congo, there are these really important rainforests and peatlands that store a bunch of CO2 and also have all kinds of other benefits for biodiversity and that type of stuff. And, you know, that's a country where a lot of people are incredibly poor and they're auctioning off oil concessions land leases for yeah oil and gas exploration and you know that's the main way for them presently to try and monetize the value of the lands but wouldn't it be great if there was another way for them to get paid to actually you know do nothing with that land at least in terms of development and protect it and conserve it and keep it the way it is um that's exactly right and um they're really i think most alarming stat that we all kind of know but is always worthwhile to reiterate is actually a soccer stat which is apropos because this weekend was the world cup but (laughs) um we globally lose about one soccer field worth of rainforest every six seconds which equates to entire countries worth of rainforest lost every year so 
We are rapidly destroying these ecosystems for exactly that reason, that they are primarily in the developing world. And that is how these countries need to develop. And so unless you create a mechanism to essentially provide them revenue for doing these activities that we say we want to see and say that we care about, namely preservation and restoration, then you can't expect them to not do that. So that's the sort of intelligence behind the VCM. Now, aka the voluntary carbon market for those not as intimately familiar with the acronyms (laughs) that I throw around every day. No, it's super helpful. Yes. So now your question was, what are the challenges that have prevented the VCM from scaling that Flow Carbon specifically identified and is working towards addressing? So there's really three. They are very intimately connected. The first is you start on the supply side, which is the project side. These are precisely these kinds of projects like conservation or reforestation, often happening in the developing world. These projects are very challenging to both finance Mm -hmm. at the outset and to get certified. So what this looks like is somebody identifies an at-risk land concession. You brought up the example of the Congo, where they were giving out land leases for oil exploration. Similarly, somebody identifies an area of land that is carbon-rich. Often it's a rainforest that is at risk of being imminently destroyed, right? Because there's a reason why somebody wants to buy it, destroy it, and make money off of it. Whether it's oil, agriculture, grazing, palm oil, et cetera. What the carbon market does, so somebody needs to identify that, that kind of land concession, and there's capital involved in securing it, right? It has to be secured, this land asset. There's capital involved in then collecting all the data from the project and presenting it to the carbon crediting agencies. Again, I'm I'm really simplifying a host of work streams here, but essentially you need the project to get started. You need to collect a lot of data from the project, whatever the project is. On the nature-based side, we're talking about conservation, reforestation, afforestation, habitat restoration. There's a bunch of agriculture, soil-based projects. There's a lot of other kinds of projects, renewable energy, et cetera. But regardless, whatever it is, you need to actually start your project And you need to collect a lot of data from your project to present to a carbon crediting standards body to then get your credits. Mm -hmm. And this timeframe here often takes, it could take 12 months, it could take two years. And so the project needs early stage capital to get up and running and start doing what it's doing and also to collect the data it needs to generate its revenue by getting through this carbon crediting process. It's called the validation verification registration, and then issuance process. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. These are incredibly difficult kinds of projects to underwrite for traditional investors. Yeah, I bet. It's very challenging right now to get through this process of data collection to validation to certification registration. You're talking about project developers on the ground in the developing world in really remote ecosystems having to do all kinds of like data pulls and data <laughs> aggregation interfacing with a couple of there's a couple of third parties that you go through to do this. Right. So those were two early stage challenges that we identified early on and are very passionate about helping solve early stage financing and helping a project get through this very unwieldy arduous process of getting certified as a carbon project which often is done through like emails and PDFs and all kinds of really inefficient low management processes. Man, I can only imagine like if you're already in the middle of the Amazon trying to prevent illegal logging or something like that, you know, you would like the least of your worries to be financing and 
filling out long forms to get money for your efforts. <laughs> right. But there is now the market dynamic right now is that it's a supply constrained market and looks to be a supply constrained market for a long time, precisely because it is super hard to get a new project up and running, right. both getting the early seed capital you need to start doing some of these activities and getting it from the point of being like an awesome project to an actual certified carbon project that has credits issued to it. Right. Uh, sounds maybe like a small problem, but it's actually a major problem in the market. Potentially, it is one of the major problems in the market or challenges in the market. Yep. So that's one. Then the other challenge that has prevented the market from scaling in a real way is the way that the market itself functions. So once you have carbon credits that have been issued to a project, so you're you know, a project developer on the ground in the Congo, we've been using the Congo, so DRC. So you're on the ground in some developing country, you nevertheless have to take these credits that you've managed to get issued to you. Like you've gone through the hurdles that we just described. You now need to sell these credits to a corporate buyer. This market on the demand side is largely dominated by corporations who buy the credits as part of their overall decarbonization plans. Right. And you need to find these buyers, which is very, very challenging. So the way that the demand side works right now, or that the sort of transacting in this market takes place right now, is almost 80% over the counter. Interesting. Yeah, it's through this very opaque, non-transparent web of intermediaries, brokers and traders and marketing agents and retailing houses that basically pass these credits from hand to hand until somebody like can secure the corporate buyer. A lot of value extraction happens in the middle. And there's also no standardized contracting. There's no benchmark pricing because none of this data is publicly available at all. And it means that the, it's very difficult to transact in this market. It's hard to sell. It's hard to buy. It's hard to create any kind of structured products off of this, which very much has led to scale issues in the market. Yeah. And probably a lot of like information asymmetries too. People don't really know what the right price for something is, whether on the demand side or on the supply side. Are you getting... Tons. And because this is a product that, meaning a carbon credit, which is bought as an offset by corporations, right? There has to be a lot of confidence and credibility associated with this product for most corporate buyers. The corporations now, when they publish their decarbonization, they, a lot of them have net zero commitments, they're publishing their decarbonization plans, and they have sustainability reports that come out sometimes quarterly, sometimes annually. And they're scrutinized for a lot of these decisions, including the carbon credits that they buy. And so they need to have a lot of information associated with the carbon credits. Mm -hmm. And this is a very inefficient market for doing that. They have very limited visibility into anything. There's very limited data and information flow about projects and about credits. It's just very difficult for corporates uh, to navigate. There are some corporations that are the biggest or the most active buyers in the market, and they have invested lots of resources in bringing expertise in-house. But other than that, you literally need to be an expert buyer in order to buy these. Creates a lot of difficulties and challenges on the buy side as well. Yeah, definitely aligned on my end. I guess, you know, to some extent, registries have, and we've talked about them a little bit, they've come in over the years and tried to help alleviate with some of that. But I don't think, you know, either of us are under the illusion that they've done a perfect job. Like you can get some level of assurance from a registry that they've looked at credits and that they meet a certain standard across whatever characteristic you're interested in. But there's still plenty of examples in the past where 
you know, even projects that met a certain level of certification came back to bite corporates in the butt, uh, so to speak, because something went wrong with the project down the line and companies had been claiming them for decarbonization five years back and then suddenly that's all a wash. So yeah, ton of challenges in this area in the past. Yeah, what I'd add to that is as follows. So there's basically four main standards bodies in the market. These are basically four entities that create carbon credits that are known to be very credible, well-respected, established where the you know major corporations buy. And that's Vera Gold Standard, the American Carbon Registry, and the Climate Action Reserve. And there's a couple of other smaller, newer ones that similarly have a lot of credibility. And so what you're saying, rightfully so, is that if you're buying a credit from one of those standards bodies and one of those registries, they each maintain their own registries. They basically um, certify methodologies they certify projects against those methodologies, they create the credits, and then they are the registry housing the credits. So they have a, they're multifunctional, each of them. And if you buy from one of them, you're somewhat safe. And the answer is definitely more so than if you go off registry, for <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> Within the registries themselves, you know, it's usually better with newer credits because the methodologies have been tightened and refined over time to reflect ongoing scientific updates and data that they've received, basically, as with any sort of product and especially a scientific product, they've gotten way better over time. And so if you're buying a credit that was certified in 2008 under a methodology or a credit that was certified in 2021 under the same methodology, chances are the 2021 credit, that project needed to prove a lot more things, the methodology was tight. So yeah, but I agree with you. Largely, you're safe if you're buying from one of the established registries. However, there still could be much quicker, more efficient, more transparent data associated with credits that you buy. It's just by nature of the technology that underpins the market where you're still trafficking in pieces of paper that makes it very difficult to do research, to ensure that what you're getting is what you think you're getting. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways to make this much more efficient and transparent. Totally. Not to mention that you're right, nobody has benchmark pricing data. <laughs> yeah, so we've covered supply a little bit. We've covered demand a little bit. It felt like you were building to a third pillar of the challenges that you saw when you kind of incipiated flow carbon. Is that right? Or did we already get through the big ones? <laughs> we got three. So one is early stage financing. Two is the certification process. Yep. Three is the spot market, the way that the spot market functions. Now, there's challenges to the way the spot market functions, which we are very focused on addressing and we're most well-known for some of the solutions that we've offered there. We also think that there's a lot of innovation that could be unlocked that would bring in new demand. So not just make the market as it exists right now much more efficient, but would unlock a lot of new demand. Mm -hmm. So the solution that we've offered on the demand side is to create tokens, blockchain-based tokens that represent carbon credits. So mm -hmm. you take this asset that is a carbon credit and you create a digital twin of it in the form of a blockchain-based token that can travel beyond these registries. So we mentioned these registries that the main standards bodies maintain. And it is very hard to do anything with carbon credits because they are largely locked in these registry accounts. Right. You can make a piece of paper that represents your ownership claim on them and then sell that piece of paper to another person. But the utility that is unlocked when you create a digital twin that represents this asset, and it's a digital twin that is a line of code that is programmable into all kinds of applications unlocks a tremendous amount of demand. And something that Flow Carbon has done over the last year is demonstrate in a really robust way 
through partnerships that we've announced, all kinds of innovative use cases that stem from a programmable carbon credit. Right. And so this looks like programming carbon credits in an automated way. So the way that blockchain tokens work is that they are not only programmable, where it's a line of code that you can plug into things, but they are fully transparent on the blockchain and they operate pursuant to a smart contract, which means the things that you program them to do happen automatically without the need for manual operations. Mm -hmm. And so this allows you to take a carbon credit and plug it into, for example, point of sale solutions, where at point of sale, you can have automatic offsetting happening in small fractionalized amounts of carbon credits associated with every sale, whether you make it the consumer's choice or you have a whatever store e-commerce experience that has made this commitment at the outset to do it. You can have that happening in a transparent way, in an automatic way. Nobody needs to be tallying these things up on an Excel spreadsheet and then going into some registry account and retiring carbon (laughs) credits. Instead, you have it's happening in an automated, transparent way. You can plug these things into loyalty rewards programs. We announced a great partnership with a company that wants to start handing out fractionalized carbon credits as part of their loyalty rewards. So as their customers rack up like loyalty rewards points, they also get carbon credits that they can retire. It's actually an EV company. Their consumer base is sustainability-minded to begin with. And it's the charging stations specifically. And they get their loyalty points and they get carbon credit as part of that package. You can also, we've announced some partnerships with NFT marketplaces that want, uh, both NFT marketplaces and actually just e-commerce art sites that want to have their... All transactions, all art pieces on their sites, whether it's NFTs or regular art, all transactions offset automatically. So basically, this is just the kind of like tipping, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the innovative use cases that are unlocked when you allow developers and programmers to incorporate a programmable carbon credit into their applications. Yeah, no, I've always loved the idea of turning a credit into a line of code that you can include in any application, making it composable in that way. And of course, maintaining the traceability of it as it gets used as a building block and all kinds of other applications. I guess one one question I have, one technical one and then a little bit broader, like what actually happens to the credit at the registry once you make the digital twin of it? Do they, you know, just put it off in a different account? Do they retire it? How is it like just like from an accounting perspective, how do they market so that it doesn't get used twice, like once on chain and once off? Yeah, great question. Super important question. The most important thing is that when you have this digital twin, it's got to be very robust from a legal and operational standpoint, right? We have a lot of institutional partners Mm -hmm. and this has got to be an institutional grade product. And the answer is it can't be retired because when you take a carbon credit and you retire it, you are using it. It has now been used and its value is nothing. And the environmental claim associated with the credit has been, that is the moment when it's allowed, you can claim it. Right. And so it's kind that's of been it. consumed in a sense. Yeah, exactly right. So instead it resides in the registry in an account in flow carbons model. It resides in a custodial account at the registry. So it's very similar to a warehouse construct where Flow Carbon warehouses these goods, which are carbon credits, and gives back to the original owner like a warehouse receipt. It's a digitized representation of the credits that we're warehousing. And they can then use this digitized receipt, which is a token, in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And that's the construct there. 
Okay, got it. Understood. Yeah. And then the second question I had in that vein was zooming out a little bit. What has it been like to you know work with the registries as you're developing your new solutions? Because to them, this must all seem at sometimes I'm sure like not always all that easy to understand. I know that you do a good job of breaking it down for them, but they operate in a very different world, or at least that's my sense of how they work. So what's that process been like? And what are some of the questions that they ask along the way? Yeah, we work very closely with the main standards bodies. And what I'll say is this, I have been absolutely amazed by the degree to which they have leaned into thinking through blockchain-based solutions and tokenization of carbon credits specifically. You have three of the main standards bodies, two of them, Vera and Gold Standard, which are, Vera is by far the market leader by market size. They issue something like 70% of all carbon credits in circulation. Got it. And Gold Standard is second. And they have both done already, they've concluded public consultations on tokenization, on the creation of tokens backed by their carbon credits. I can't think of another real world market where the two market leading institutions have in accordance with their formal processes taken up the question of <laughs> should we move the asset that is at the core of our market on chain? Yeah, at least in that's true. It's pretty astounding. When we launched Flow Carbon, not that long ago, by the way, a year and basically a year and a half ago or so, a little bit less. We absolutely did not envision that Vera and Gold Standard and the American Carbon Registry has a more private version of this, a private consultation going on. We did not envision that they would lean into this in such a way that they would actually have formal processes associated with exploring it, coming up with a framework, thinking through what the rules and principles guiding tokenization should look like. I think they've demonstrated a tremendous amount of innovation and innovative thinking. They've been really forward thinking. And we engage with them very actively in helping them think through this. So they now, both of them have closed their public consultations. They're digesting the submissions that they received. They received a lot of submissions. Um, they, most, both of them really very recently concluded. And now they're thinking through what the sort of next step is. But I've been really amazed by their approach. A good thing to keep an eye on as we head into 2023. I wouldn't say the final verdict, but as you know, more of these consultations are conducted and conclude, I'll be really keen to see exactly how they kind of position the work that they want to be doing and how they feel about this. Yeah. I think an important thing to recognize is that the voluntary carbon market is largely unregulated, which means that the standards bodies, Vera, Gold Standard, American Carbon Registry, have a really important role to play. Like They do a lot, and the moves that they make should need to be and should be really carefully calibrated because of that. Right. They are sort of like gatekeepers and almost semi-regulatory bodies in this market. And so they need, do need to be cautious and thoughtful about the things that they enable. That has to be weighed against, of course, the fact that we are on a very limited time frame to basically address climate change and that the voluntary carbon market needs to scale by many orders of magnitude in order to like deliver on the climate impact that would make it meaningful, right? So precisely, yeah. being cautious and careful is very important. At the same time, this year, 2022, this was a $2 billion market, which is a tiny market. Right. Anyone who knows markets, tiny market. Some of the projections that I've seen have this market at anywhere from a 30 to $100 billion market by 2030. Right. So it's expected to grow many times over in the next few years. 
and needs to. And so on the one hand, you need to enable if you are key market stakeholders or anyone who cares about climate change, you need to enable the technologies that um, facilitate this scale. Otherwise, it's an irrelevant market that might as well I don't want to say anything too strong, but it's an almost irrelevant market or a market that's delivering on negligible climate impact. Right. Well, speaking of timeframes and also exercising some caution and diligence and rolling something out, we've talked about that you all are building a token to be able to trade carbon credits on chain. When can we expect the release of the token that you all have been working on for a while? Or is that still TBD? So for the reasons we just described, we think that a blockchain token that's backed by a carbon credit adds tremendous uh, utility and scale in the market, namely in being a programmable or composable line of code that developers can use in their applications, unlocks a tremendous amount of demand that is not transacting in this market at all. We also think that for those who are transacting in the market, namely corporates, this is a much more transparent, especially price transparent, and liquid way of accessing carbon credits as an alternative to what is a notoriously difficult and opaque and time-consuming and resource-intensive buying process for corporations. Right. So the promise of a token backed by a carbon credit is a very big promise. Now, we are working very closely with the standards bodies, especially we just referenced the public consultations and the private consultation happening there. And so we're very actively engaged in those processes and in helping basically secure the stakeholder buy-in at the standards bodies for enabling their carbon credits to be tokenized. And so, as I said, this should be done very cautiously and carefully, and I think they're moving. I think it was a tremendous sign that they launched these consultations, and so we are very actively engaged with them and just working on the process with them. And one question that I was thinking of as we started talking about token for the second time Depending on whom you talk to in the carbon market space, some people trend more towards this idea that too much commodification of different carbon removal credits would be a bad thing. They rightly point out that there are a lot of different types of projects out there and they can have different characteristics around even just what it costs to develop the project, the manner in which it sequesters or prevents the emission of greenhouse gas emissions, kind of its durability or how long you expect it to reliably last for. And then there's other folks that think, you know, it's really important that there is more commodification of credits because, you know, without something like an oil contract or a corn contract on a traditional commodities market, you don't have nearly as much clean, coherent price information. Where do you land on that? Where would you place yourself on the spectrum of people that think that like every credit needs to reflect all of its unique characteristics versus a product like a token that might start to inject some commodification into the market? It's a great question. It's a very active question in the entire VCM. There's nobody working in the VCM who isn't asking this exact question, having nothing to do with tokens. There's a lot of initiatives in the market that center around this question. And I think the answer is we need more commoditization. Now, I, as somebody who works in the market, understand the absolutely unique characteristics associated with specific projects. I understand that each project is special. I also, we have a very active sales team here that interface with corporate buyers and corporations also, um, who are the main buyers, are attuned to having a very narrative-driven buying experience where they really understand all of the unique characteristics of a project. And I think that is a very satisfying and beautiful 
way of doing business in this market, but it is not scalable like in the time frame that we need. Sure. You need to have some more commoditization to enable buyers to access this market in a much more efficient and cost-effective way. So there's a number of market initiatives working to do this. You basically just need quality benchmarks. And that's where the ICVCM, which is the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, is working to basically set thresholds for quality such that you can, as a buyer, know that a carbon credit has a certain level of quality without having to do extensive project level research on your own. Right. And then there's starting to be basically market I would either, you could call them buckets, you could call them grades, you could call them different kinds of carbon credits that the market is cohering around. So you have different methodology types. So there's avoided deforestation credits, there's mm-hmm. cook stove credits that come from more efficient cooking devices in the developing world. Right. There's reforestation credits. So there's different methodologies. Years are an important variable that go into carbon credits, but you can start to create buckets or we call them bundles that flow carbon. Right. You can start to design buckets, bundles, baskets, whatever word you want to use that pool a lot of these credits together from along certain criteria qualifications that start to add liquidity and some degree of commoditization, which is absolutely essential to scaling the market. Got it. Yeah. So it's not full commoditization like an oil or corn contract, as I referenced, but pools of reasonably like credits to offer the benefit that you would get from having a fully commodified contract. Exactly. Got it. Understand. All the way back to the supply side, I feel like it's always just interesting to ask folks like yourself that are so involved in the space, like what are just some cool examples of project developers that you've worked with? Because, you know, we started the conversation talking about how important it is to be able to help folks like that secure early financing. And I think it's always fascinating to hear about some of the work that's being done on the ground. Yeah, there's phenomenal project developers doing really essential work. I think like everyone, we get really excited about the project developers who are not only doing great carbon projects, but are building in what's called co-benefits, but really just means a lot of additional social programming and educational initiatives that take place at the project site and add these tremendous additional benefits to the local communities. So there are projects where it's not only conserving some hectares of rainforest, but there's also schools being built, hospitals being built, water systems that are being preserved, uh, habitats for endangered wildlife that are being protected. There's all, it's really creating a circular economy where the carbon revenue is creating employment opportunities. Mm. A great example is there are these amazing mangrove ecosystems, particularly in Mexico. There's some great project developers in Mexico doing mangrove projects where they're taking these mangrove ecosystems. So mangrove per capita is by far the best carbon sequester. And They've been degraded in a large part by shrimping activities, but that's what supports local communities. And so instead, you put a carbon project there, which not only preserves and protects these mangrove ecosystems, but provides alternative revenue streams to supplant the shrimping and builds a bunch of kind of social services around the project areas that includes a bunch of initiatives for indigenous communities. And you have this really beautiful kind of circular economy with 
related social services. And so it's really incredible. The other thing I'll say is I've learned a lot over the last few months about cook stove projects. I don't know if you've ever gone in depth. Yeah, I have myself, but let's catch some of the people that are probably not as familiar as us who are listening in on up to speed a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. So cook stove project looks like this. In the developing world, especially in really remote rural areas in the developing world, possibly the main or leading cause of death. I think it is the leading cause of death. I heard a stat from... Certainly up there, yeah. Yeah, a major cook stove developer like last week. It comes from respiratory illness associated with their cooking mechanism. So they're just like chopping down wood and burning in unbelievably dirty way to cook in like these open fires in their living. Right, like in their house, yeah. In their house, yeah. And it's equivalent to smoking, I forgot what he said, I think it's smoking like three packs of cigarettes a day. And this is like young girls and women predominantly. And so it's like the leading cause of death in a lot of these communities and has a whole host of additional like horrible effects, including emissions, obviously. And so what a cook, what cook stove project developers do is they go to these rural communities and they hand out more efficient cooking mechanisms. It's just a cooking mechanism that doesn't require you to go and chop wood. Oh, by the way, the other thing is when they have to go and chop the wood, they often have to walk to really remote areas, which has a lot of danger associated with it. Yeah. And they might have to walk five or 10 miles a day. Yeah. So it's time consuming. It prevents them from going to school because their time has to be spent doing that. It's dangerous. Like these walks are dangerous. And then when they come back, they're burning the wood in, in an extremely unhealthy and emissions heavy practice. So like really bad all around. Anyway, they give out these cooking devices, efficient cooking devices that prevent all of this from needing to happen. And there are often meters on these cooking devices that just keep track of like when they're in use. And in the aggregate, when you distribute thousands of these, you can calculate the delta in emissions between the wood burning activity and these new cooking mechanisms, and you get carbon credits um, associated with that. And for a long time, this was not as either popular or big of a carbon crediting. It it didn't represent that big of a part of the market. but It wasn't popular. Yeah, yeah it was either wasn't as popular. It took a while for these projects to kind of... Vera's methodology for cook stoves is relatively new. It took a while for them to generate the infrastructure and processes and resources needed to really get going. But now they really have gotten going. There's a lot of cook stove projects happening and they're unbelievably phenomenal. When you see the images associated with these communities, when you hear about the change in their lives associated with simply giving them a new cooking device, it's really, really meaningful. It's very powerful. So there's like the carbon component, which is, you know, we all care. Anybody in this market obviously cares about that as a main focus, but there's all of these additional benefits that are tremendous, like just really meaningful. And to close the loop a little bit, it's coming together in my head how all the work that you're doing at Flow Carbon helps basically scale the entire market, which in turn helps these projects. But, you know, how do you describe to someone that's asking like what the through line is from the work that you're doing and like actually getting the money in the door for someone potentially developing a clean cooking stove project? Like what's the pathway to easier financing? Well, so we're active on both sides of the market, supply and demand. We actually are active in helping projects get financed. We did this on chain earlier this year where we took a great project in the Chaco Forest. It hadn't yet issued credits. It was still in a pre-issuance phase. We took a forward contract from that project. We tokenized it and allowed investors to basically take positions on that forward contract, which 
was a way of basically creating a structured finance product off of a forward contract. So that's a mechanism for getting early stage capital at effective rates of capital to early stage project developers. So that's definitely something we're very focused on. And we've done similar things on and off chain to help get early stage financing to project developers, especially smaller ones. So smaller project developers, in addition to all of the challenges that come from asking institutional investors with their traditional risk parameters to invest in carbon projects in general, it becomes that much harder when you're a small project, right? They're not interested in investing in small projects. They have huge amounts of capital to deploy. They're looking at the really large scale projects, not the small ones. Um, So their flow carbon is building in the form of our financing that we did earlier, sort of structured finance products to facilitate early stage capital to project developers. So that is literally exactly what you said, getting private capital to project developers and also assisting them in other ways. I mentioned other challenges they have with getting their project in addition to financed through this very difficult, unwieldy, inefficient certification process, validation and certification process. So we help them in other ways as well. And so that's direct. On the demand side of the market, it's pretty apparent that when you fix the demand side of the market, there's major upstream benefits for those that are generating supply. And so by making a more transparent way of selling carbon credits, number one, you give project developers the ability to access the market without the need for a bunch of intermediaries. Not always, but that's literally what a token is. If you're a project developer and you can turn your carbon credits that you've been issued into a token through our protocol, and then that token can trade freely on DEXs and exchanges that you know that you can access from anywhere. That is the point of crypto of blockchain. You can access it. There's actually greater adoption in the developing world of crypto than there is here. For sure. And so they can sell directly in that way, but it also expands the demand side. So as the market itself expands, because now it's a programmable thing that developers can use in a whole host of ways, which leads to a lot more buying. So as you expand the demand side, obviously that has major upstream benefits for the supply side. And so we think that by advocating for a more open and expanded and programmable mechanism on the demand side, namely a tokenized carbon credit, we are advocating for project developers. But I guess, you know, it requires me to articulate how, as opposed (laughs) to it being very clear. Like we're helping you finance your project. That's pretty clear. This is how we see what we're doing on the tokenization front as being really intended to help project developers. Perfect. Yeah. No, I love that explanation. And the dual approach is laudable too, directly working with folks at times. And I think also super important I'm sure, in your experience to help you understand each step of the challenge that one of those project developers normally has to go through. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. In closing, what are the big things that you're looking to accomplish in 2023? Yeah, we are very excited about the work that we're doing with project developers. So partnering with a bunch of project developers to assist them with financing, with the validation and certification process, and with a number of other work streams that have traditionally been really challenging for them. And this includes project developers across a range of methodologies and geographies. We are passionate about nature-based solutions, but see the tremendous value in other kinds of carbon projects as well. And so it's really continuing to forge these great relationships on the supply side with project developers and supporting them as best as we can, both with our team that has tremendous expertise in this market and with infrastructure that we build. 
Awesome. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, keeping tabs on it myself and following along. What's the best place for folks to keep up with updates from you and Flow Carbon, incidentally? Definitely follow us on Twitter, or we are Flow Carbon on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, although the Flow Carbon account definitely would have the most active updates. And then check out our website at flowcarbon.com. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much for being on, Dana. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I think a really both a really good primer on the voluntary carbon market and the work that you and the team are doing. So appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.